had separate. This lady was like, come over here, come over here. And she's like, had her phone out. And she was like, I want you to see this. And so she plays for me the dueling banjo scene from Deliverance. And she's like, you play that. And I was like, yes, I know how to play that. She's like, no, go play that. <laughs> okay, I'll play dueling banjos. And it's like, I've played all this complex, the stuff that I wrote and all this whatever, you know what I mean? Didn't care one bit. Greetings, everybody. It's the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. This is Keith Billick here, wishing you a happy new year and welcoming you back to another episode. And this is another one that was recorded on the exhibit hall floor at the IBMA convention last fall in Raleigh, North Carolina. I told you I was busy, but it is all worth the hustle to, to deliver this nerdy banjo goodness to all you listeners here. And you know who we have to thank for making all of this possible is the Patreon supporters of the show. This podcast is almost completely funded by listeners who go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast and pledge a few dollars per month to help keep the lights on here at Picky Fingers HQ. And this episode, we have a very special Patreon supporter to give a shout out to. That's Chris Kibby Winder. He started playing recently by buying a 1950s RB250 banjo. So he's really hitting the ground running and also hit the ground running extra fast by becoming a Hall of Honor Patreon supporter uh, over at the Patreon site. So Chris, Kibby, however you like to be referred to, thank you so much for your support. And once again, head over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to support the show yourself. It is a huge help and is greatly appreciated. In exchange for your Patreon support, not only do you get the satisfaction of helping the podcast, but you get some rewards, including the personal shout out like Chris just got. You can get the music tracks that you're hearing now, the intro and outro theme music for the podcast, along with banjo tablature. Uh, there's also t-shirts and invitations to our monthly video meet. Uh, that's the VIP lounge for very important pickers. So yeah, please go check that out. It is well worth it. And again, much appreciated. I also dig hearing from you listeners. So feel free to reach out anytime at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. Today's featured guest is Hank Smith, a top-notch performer, teacher, and composer. He currently plays banjo with Hank Paddy and The Current, and I think you'll get a taste of just how versatile a player Hank is. Not only can he absolutely destroy some bluegrass playing, but he's gone through stints as banjo player with a Flectones tribute band and has composed banjo with string quartet music in addition to all the stuff with his regular band but you're going to hear about all of this coming right up so please put your hands together for hank smith I'm Hank Smith, and um, I'm originally from Florence, South Carolina. Um, I've lived in Raleigh since 2006 and have been playing uh, professionally since 2003. 
got into banjo uh, because I thought it sounded cool. I don't come from a musical family necessarily. Uh Um, My folks are Yankee expats that moved to South Carolina when I was six months old. So the music in the house growing up was always like classic rock, you know, Bob Seger, Neil Diamond, Elton John, stuff like that. But also Bob Dylan and Arlo Guthrie and things like that. So Good stuff, just not necessarily banjo. Not bluegrass. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And... um, you know, as a kid growing up, uh, the the shows on TV that were for us would be like the Dukes of Hazard and Hee Haw and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So like banjo music was in the periphery a bit, but it wasn't until I was in high school that I decided, hey, this is pretty cool. I'd like to try this. And some of my friends were playing guitar and I thought it would be kind of a lark to learn banjo as like kind of a like a party trick almost. Like it would be kind of yeah. fun to like, oh, you know bust this out and play doing banjos or whatever and just something to be different yeah and like i also heard all this music on the radio like at the time uh in the early mid 90s um you know nirvana soundgarden all that stuff was super popular all Mm -hmm. over the radio radio and all that and so i thought it would be kind of neat to learn that kind of music on a different instrument because i thought the banjo sounded cool it sounded cooler than the guitar to me and it was like imagine if you could do all this other kind of music on this instrument so Having had no, you know, preformed background about banjo is supposed to do this thing, it was it was wide open. I also a, a classmate of mine in school found out that I liked banjo music and was getting into bluegrass and folk and stuff like that, and, and was like, "Have you ever heard of Merlefest?" No. He's like, "All right, borrow these VHS tapes from like PBS shows yeah. of Merlefest." I was like, "Oh my god, this is great!" And he gave me the the Flectones first album, hmm. and that was it. That set it off for me. And my best friend growing up, father, played banjo. And so he was like, come on over and let me show you, you know. So he showed me Foggy Mountain Breakdown and dropped a bunch of Flatten Scruggs records and stuff on me and was like, that was it. So once the floodgates started cracking open a little bit, you just... uh, That was it. Yeah, Completely hooked. And so... You know, I guess my parents were like, all right, whatever, we'll get you one. And they got me like the world's <laughs> cheapest pawn shop banjo because they figured it was just a phase. And that phase has lasted almost 30 years at this point. <laughs> yeah. So so did you ever achieve your dream of learning Nirvana and Soundgarden? Oh, yeah, tunes? of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was pretty Still quick. remember any of them? Um, you know, I can still fake my way through. <laughs> you know what I mean? Stuff like that. Awesome. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, no, once I, I figured out that I liked this thing and could actually do it, it was like, oh man, this is this is the best thing ever. So, how did you figure out how to do it? As you as you just put, that's a good question. I didn't have a teacher or anything. Um, so, once I was like getting into practicing and and that kind of stuff, I'd listen to these Flat and Scrug CDs and would just try to imitate what I was hearing. Um, some of it, obviously, at the very beginning stages, was too fast. Mm-hmm. for me to keep up with um so i would try to play along with stuff that i could keep up with like certain songs were slower sure and i remember having a pete Seeger live at newport cd mm-hmm. and he does i mean he played claw hammer but he also played a lot of three finger stuff but the stuff he was doing was more folky yeah and was therefore more accessible for my you know my level of ability at that time also um because i was practicing in a vacuum i didn't know that capos existed oh and so early on i trained myself to like do like just bar with my index finger finger. (laughs) yeah i remember going to a 
for those of you listening, I did that with my index finger. Yeah, um, in, in the key of B. In the key there, of B, yeah. of course. And and so when I went to my first like bluegrass jam or festival or whatever, I was doing that, and they were like, "What are you doing?" I was like, "This isn't <laughs> this isn't a different key, right?" And they're like, "Why don't you use a capo?" And I'm like, "What is capo?" <laughs> Same went for alternate tunings. I didn't understand that Reuben was played in a different key, yeah, so yeah. I went. And people were like, why are you doing that? And I'm like, how are you supposed to do it? And they're like, tune, tune, tune. I'm like, oh, it's much easier with right. just one finger. Yeah. Isn't that something? <laughs> um, so I started going, they had a, near where I grew up, they had a monthly bluegrass jam and like concert. Mm -hmm. The Southeastern Bluegrass Association um, had this monthly thing down in a state park um, near there. And I would go and I'd go all day. It was once a month, like the first Saturday of the month or something like that. And I would go when the gates opened and would leave at the end of the night. And, and this is still like a high school thing for you? Yeah, yeah, okay. very much in high school. Um, so that was like the first crash course in like actual bluegrass. And I definitely yeah. heard a lot of that ain't no part of nothing. You don't need to play like this. You need to play like that, that kind of stuff. And then there was a fair amount of people that were like, just ignore that and do what you want. So other than maybe some of these like slightly clumsier interpretations that you've been demonstrating, what were you playing like? Did, were you trying to do like a... A real scruggs based thing but you also mentioned i mean i know these merle fest videos must have had a wide variety sure. of things and then the flectone cd to me it was all fair game yeah you know having no like preconceived notion of what quote unquote it's supposed to be mm -hmm. it was all like pretty wide open so i just accepted all of it for what it was you know it was like i just knew that the sound of the banjo and what the banjo was doing regardless was awesome. So it's yeah. like, I don't care what it is. Like, I just want to know more about everything. So the first, you know, year and a half or so of, of playing banjo while I was still in high school, I was just trying to absorb as much of it as I could. In, uh, on Thanksgiving weekend, and this is, I think it's in its 53rd year or something, the South Carolina State Bluegrass Festival happens in Myrtle Beach, uh -huh. South Carolina. And... My family moved about 20-something years ago, 25 years ago, moved from Florence to Merle's Inlet, South Carolina, which is in the Myrtle Beach area. So at Thanksgiving, I would go to the, the, uh, the South Carolina State Bluegrass Festival, which is a much larger version of what I was doing before. And so okay. there'd be more people and, and things and jams and stuff like that. So I definitely got a sense of what traditional bluegrass was supposed to be. But by the time I got to college, there was no one my age playing bluegrass. All mm -hmm. of the kids in school were playing jazz, Grateful Dead covers, you know, reggae, whatever, anything. Like, and there, yeah. were, there was still a large jamming population, but it was other kinds of music. So I just absorbed all that, too, because, again, I wanted to be able to play all kinds of different music on the banjo. And that yeah. extended then into jazz and classical and whatever else I could get my hands on. Wow. So, yeah, you, you have so many influences is there is there something that you recall maybe learning or working on at the time that kind of went on to be really critical to whatever you would consider your style to be i mean i think i figured out the melodic style m more quickly and then worked into i mean first it started out with like three finger scrugs straight up yeah you know traditional banjo style but the, the melodic style to me and improvising, I think that was the first real like touchstone moment was like, because I didn't know any of this other music and understood that if I had to play like Grateful Dead type music or jazz, the improvising is crucial. And yeah. it is in bluegrass too, but more extended improvisational sections in that music as opposed to bluegrass where you get like a 30 second burst of yeah. whatever, make up your solo, but you only get this much time. 
Whereas like a 15 minute dark star is like, you got plenty of time to stretch out on You're that one. You're not going to memorize it like you can with salty dog or something. Correct. Yeah. yeah you know, it's just <laughs> wide open. So like, um, being able to improvise and, and adapt to different things quickly, I think was the touchstone that became more of a, would become a cornerstone of the, of the style because I had to, I needed to know how to improvise. And that's definitely been a big help because as I've gotten into more complex music, um, learning classical and jazz and stuff like that uh, with complex arrangements, I am not good at sight reading. The other folks in my band are all trained musicians, have been to school multiple times, have multiple degrees in music, and can sight read anything down from a sheet of paper. Yeah. And I can't do that very quickly. So I have to hear it. And so all of that, like, I guess through osmosis, taught me how to listen and taught me how to improvise with the music that was in front of me. And so even now, you know, um, w which we can get into talking about this in a bit, um, writing classical pieces for banjo and string quartet. I absolutely want to talk about um, that, yeah. You know, when we're in rehearsals with string quartets and or classical musicians, um, I usually have to have a bandmate translate <laughs> for me because the string musicians, the classical musicians, who are all top flight, you know, really talented people, are asking me specific questions about, well, what did you mean by this? Is there supposed to be a fermata here in measure 36 or whatever? And I'm like, what's it sound like? Which part of the score is that? And I'll like <laughs> go over and look at one of my bandmates and be like, what are they talking about? You know what I mean? <laughs> Can you hilarious. play that section for me? Because I don't know what it looks like. You right. know what I mean? Or if it's written in tab, that's the other thing too. Like tab is fine. I can read tab, uh -huh. no problem. So what I try to do with the scores that I come up with is have the tab in parallel with the standard notation. So okay. I know like I can reference it. Yeah, interesting. Just a translation. So going back to the fact that improvising, in your view, helped you a lot, how did you find yourself working on that? Or maybe even even still today, how do you, how do you work in, on being able to do that? Jams. Mm -hmm. I mean, just playing with other people, you know, like trying to absorb different kinds of music in different situations and having to think on your feet, like try to be quick. Improvisation is fast motion composing. Yeah. And it, composing is slow motion improvising. So it's it's like the more of it you can expose yourself to and the more of it you can do. Like every time I always every time I go out and play, I try to do something different or try to hear something differently. Even if it's in a song I've played a zillion times, it's mm -hmm. like, what can I do differently this time that I didn't do the last time? Or I'm listening to the guitar player do something and it's like, ooh, I like the phrase. I want to try to imitate that. And then just chameleon my way through it like right it's a, I, I i contend and my bandmates push against me on this all the time that i am an imposter entirely because and, i i'm i'm doing things that maybe i shouldn't be able to do based on my level of ability or training but have been able to because i can listen and improvise my way through it so you're, you think you're an imposter because you feel like you're not having your own ideas and you're just leeching them no. off of other people? No, not at all. Not at all. I think they are my own ideas. It's more of like we're playing the super complex music that they've all been trained to play uh -huh. and I've had to figure it out. Okay. And so like I don't I have the background. And when I'm composing these pieces for string quartet or whatever... You know, the, the string players are like, oh, yeah, this is really great. Like, great idea through here. Like, what a cool idea, et cetera, et cetera. We've never mm -hmm. really played anything like that. Can you explain it? And I'm like, nope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's banjo music. You know what I mean? I have no idea. <laughs> I think I get it. So, so going back to your development, at what point did you 
start getting to play maybe more uh i guess we'd call it professionally like with a with a sure with a band i would say in college um late college late undergrad um i went to winthrop university in rock hill south carolina which is a small liberal arts school which had a very vibrant um music and arts community in a small space and i would say that was probably where it all started for that kind of thing yeah um and what kind of group was that it was bluegrass, but we were playing, okay. you know, we would we would throw in, you know, tunes like Minor Swing and Autumn Leaves and, and stuff like that and, okay. and original stuff. That was the other thing, too, is like I've always placed a high regard on original music and original mm-hmm. arrangements and stuff like that because anybody can play covers. Yeah. And if you can kind of come up with your own tunes and your own arrangements of existing tunes, then that sets you apart from whatever. And I always, like, friends in school, like... There were a couple of bands that were playing original tunes. Most of it was like in the rock and roll context. Um, mm-hmm. So I wanted to take that idea that I was learning from them and translate it to more like progressive style bluegrass. Of course, I'm listening to the Flecktones and Newgrass Revival and Tony Trishka and Bela Fleck and stuff like that. Yeah. And like, this is the kind of stuff that I'm coming from uh, and and trying to disseminate amongst the people or whatever. And, right. you know, they're like, have you have you heard of this band called Olden in the Way? And I'm like, yeah, I've been trying to tell you about that for years. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like, come on, guys. <laughs> you only like it because Jerry's in the band. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? It's like, we've been, I've been talking to you about this. But in any case, um, yeah, no, like just being able to perform the stuff that was in my head. Mm-hmm. And then once I figured out, like, oh, wait, you know, like, I could, I can do this. Like, people are giving me money to do this now. Mm-hmm. Like, this is cool. Like, this is what I, this is it. This is what I want to do. But yeah. I, it wasn't a straight journey. You know what I mean? Like, I went through undergrad. I got my degree and then went back for a master's. And then after, I, halfway through my master's program, I met a touring band from here in Raleigh. And the rest was history. After I got my degree, <laughs> the week later after that, I was on tour with them and hadn't looked back. And we still Amazing. play together. We're still dear friends. We don't tour professionally or do albums anymore or whatever. I'm in a, a different full-time touring band now. Yeah. Um, but that, w- that was it. It was like once I figured out I could do it and was valuable in that regard as a, a resource to others, it was like, okay, let's do this. Yeah, excellent. Is it skipping too far ahead to start asking you about the, uh, the Bela project that you did? Oh, no, not at all. Um, yeah, as a lifelong Bela fan, um, I got the idea to start a Flectone tribute band, which is completely insane. And yeah, that I seems was, insane. Not was, only from like a banjo player perspective, but finding who else who is going do to it? do that yeah. with you. Yeah. Um, even in school, like in college, um, any any and all Bela tunes I could get away with showing other people. Uh-huh. There were only a few guys in school that could play that kind of music and so it was never fully formed until i found the bass player um, that could do the victor stuff Thank you. 
Yeah. And so it's like, okay, <laughs> once we find that guy, then we can get a drummer. Uh-huh. And then we went from there. So it's like, you start with just the one dude, and then I don't want to say any drummer can do that because that's not true. But jazz drummers especially get it. They understand like polyrhythms and all the, the crazy stuff the flectones do. Yeah. And I had a buddy, have a buddy, um, that could cover the keyboard stuff. We had to split Howard Levy into two people um, <laughs> because how are you going to do that? Yeah. Um, and then I have a really a dear friend, multi-instrumentalist friend um, that can play anything with strings that could cover like the Sam Bush parts and stuff like that. And um, a friend that could play the sax parts and stuff. So... When we put the band together, it took about a year to work up a three-hour show. Wow, yeah. Um, because the music is so complex. Right. And once we got it, it was hard to get everything together at first, but then it's not that hard to maintain it. Hmm. So once you get it, then it's okay. And the, <laughs> the funny thing about that is, is that at the end of the day, it's banjo music. Uh-huh. So to me, it made sense to play it under my fingers and stuff like wow. that. For those guys, it did not. Oh. So, like, there was a lot of, like, teeth gnashing about how to play banjo music on different instruments, especially the bass. And the the bass player in that band, um, Scott Warren, was very much the band leader um, and would direct the rehearsals and stuff like that. And I can remember spending hours and hours in the practice space with this band. And he would put the metronome through the PA and turn it up all the way. And so it was like a railroad spike in your head wow. the whole time. And yeah. so when you're learning like UFO tofu at uh-huh. 180 beats per minute, you need that. And it's like, we have to be able to nail this. If we're going to do it, we cannot in any way, shape or form halfway do this. Uh-huh. And so that's why it took forever to do it. So the way we presented the show was chronologically. We started with first album material and ended with Little World's material. Yeah. Um, which is as far as we got into the into the catalog before we stopped doing it. And um first set would be up through, say, like the the UFO Tofu album. Mm-hmm. And then after that was like all the Jeff Coffin stuff. Okay. You know, so we would hit yeah. we'd hit play all the hits. Basically it was a lot like the live art album. Like that was kind of oh, yeah. what we were doing. Folks, we are in a golden age of online instrument instruction, and at the top of that world is Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation has streaming video courses in banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, dobro, upright bass, and ukulele, so you can learn bluegrass, old time, and plenty of other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in all of Roots Music. Check out the courses they have and this is just for banjo you could get beginning or bluegrass banjo with bill evans Clawhammer banjo with evie laden wade ward style banjo with bruce molsky the banjo according to danny barnes and contemporary bluegrass banjo with wes corbett each of those courses include high quality video lessons downloadable notation and tab play along tracks and plenty of tunes and songs to play and the best thing yet is you're going to get your first month free just by being a listener of this show. So go to pegheadnation.com and use promo code PICKYFINGERS at checkout and claim your free month of the best instruction out there. And if you find yourself needing a banjo or accessories, 
to get ready for those Peghead Nation courses, I highly recommend you check out Elderly Instruments, which is the world's most trusted source of new used and vintage stringed instruments, including banjos, guitars, violins, mandolins, ukuleles, all that stuff. They're going to have the best instruments you can find anywhere. And we're talking everything from the more affordable instruments for people starting out on up through the most highly sought after vintage instruments. Elderly Instruments has been family owned since 1972. And if you can't make it to their Lansing, Michigan showroom, you can see their full selection at elderly.com or give them a call at 517-372-7880 for some professional advice on all of your banjo and other stringed instrument needs. And you know what all these stringed instruments have in common? They all sound better with GHS Strings. GHS Strings is another sponsor of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast, and I'm proud to say they have been made in Battle Creek, Michigan since 1974. And if you don't want to take my word for it, maybe you'll believe such people as J.D. Crow, Sonny Osborne, and Bela Fleck, just a few of the many, many users of GHS Strings. So go check them out, ghsstrings.com. They have a wide selection of gauged sets so that no matter what you're looking for, you'll be able to find something there. Uh, so I, I know this podcast is supposed to be about you, but <laughs> I'm, I'm curious as to it's such that's such an intimidating project that was there any like code that you felt like you cracked with Bela's approach totally. to playing and, yep. and like what are some I don't know what are some things that you stumbled on that maybe made some of it easier or totally uh, that that's a really good question and there definitely were a lot of aha moments with that and I think most of that came in the arrangements hmm. because at the end of the day like Stomping Grounds is a good example Stomping Grounds kind of does the same thing over and over again okay. in terms of the arrangement of the tune like if yeah. I was just going to sit here and play Stomping Grounds from start to finish I would be playing the same things over and over again. I would yeah. be playing different people's parts, but musically speaking, it's kind of the same melodic content. Yeah. So what was cool about learning that was, um, and all the songs, was uh, you step in, you do your thing, you back up. Somebody else does the thing, they back up. Somebody else does the thing, they back up. And so it was a lot of this like moving back and forth sort of instrumentally, melodically um, throughout the arrangement of whatever tune so that no one person is doing one thing for too long. There's no domination one way or the other. Like it's, it's almost like that old Hartford approach. It's very much, and it makes sense. And Bela and John Hartford were good friends. Uh -huh. Like, and all his stuff with Newgrass and all that, like all of that totally makes sense. And you kind of yeah. get inside the mind of the man a bit to understand how he puts the music together and the patterns and all of the, again, the melodic content and all that. And since then, I've become friends with Bela and have a, a more keen insight on how he does things. And it's all right on. Like, it was like, okay, like that, well, I wasn't wrong about that. Oh, that's really cool. pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. And I know that you got at least some sort of uh, implicit blessing from him at some point. I think I've read explicit. about you. Yeah, no, oh, like great. it was actually here at IBMA. Like we had been working up this material for, you know, the better part of the year. And our first show was going to be in, a, in January of whatever year that was, I think 2015 or 16. And we had spent that whole year working it up, and I had handbill flyers that I was putting up. Oh, so you hadn't even performed yet? No. We oh, were, wow. we were. I wanted to put the flyers up for the first show in January during IBMA wow. so people yeah. would yeah, see it. Sense. And also, I knew he was going to be here. And so, uh, he, and, he was performing 
with like an all-star group and Abby was performing, but they weren't performing together. So there was like a pop-up show in one of the suites in the Marriott that I got invited to and watched them perform. And at the end of it, the shake and howdy, I handed him the flyer <laughs> and he was like, so you're the guy. And I was like, Ooh, he's like, that's great. He's like, this is awesome. You know, like, I, I think it's really fantastic that you're doing this. We had a blast with that music, you know, like have fun with it, do what you uh-huh. want with it, et cetera, et cetera. And then once we got some shows under our belt and put some videos together, I emailed him some clips, like yeah. the stuff that's on YouTube. And uh, he wrote back and was like, this is great. You're doing a great job. You know, you worked hard at this. I'm going to send this to the other guys, you know, whatever. And so that got on his radar. And then after that, you know, there was the camp, Bela's camp and all that stuff. So he he definitely knew who I was and um, went to the two years of the camp. And then the pandemic hit. And some of us from the camp, from our class, um, have been on, and it's ongoing, have been on a weekly Zoom call with him. This for is the mahogany, the mahogany uh, crew. Yep, yeah, some of us um, have been on a call with him for two and a half years. Amazing. And so all during the pandemic, like we really got to know each other. And and when we saw each other this past August at camp, you yeah. know, we were like, it was really great that we got to be able to do that. It really like helped our collective sanity. Oh, I'm sure. And definitely helped like. Not one, to mention just what a valuable resource that you all can be for each other. That's totally. Great. Yeah, and it was you know like you get inside you. You get inside his mind and everybody else's mind about how to approach banjo and stuff like that. But then we also just became good friends and shared, you know, mm-hmm. lots of personal stuff. And it was really great. So yeah. you get, you know, a very deep understanding of not just the music, but like how all of it works. Amazing. Really sweet. Let's steer back to your own playing. Are there any, um, this is kind of a wide open question, but are there any particular techniques or approaches that you have to your specific banjo playing that you think are an important part of your style, either something unique that you do or just something that you rely on a lot? Um, yeah, I would say like, for me, I'm, I'm a very melodic approach to things and I always complain that I'm stuck in my own stuff. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. So like having, having something like that Zoom call or just the camp or whatever really helps accentuate stuff I know how to do and shows me a bunch of new things. But um, like the melodic style and the single string style are, are two big big things that I lean on quite a bit um, for, okay. for things, uh, especially as it relates to improvising and, and composing and stuff. So like in terms of like just stuff that I lean on all the time, like there's all the kind of melodic stuff like that standard stock and trade melodic licks um but then there's some jazzier like stuff um enclosures 
yeah, stuff explain like that. how you use those. I, I I'm always intrigued by how how people work with that. So there's there's if we're if we're in the key of G, for example, um, the the two five one changes you may have heard much ado made over that, especially in jazz mm. circles. Um, if we're in G, then it's an A minor, a D, and G. Um, which would be like going through. So, for example, if we're going to do that in G, then you'd start on the E minor arpeggio, E minor 7, excuse me, arpeggio, and then come back down the major scale to land on the major third of the one chord. Yeah. Um, and so that's like the, the seven, the major seven, and the third are the two notes that draw the ear in the most. They're like the magnets. Yeah. Um, so... Having those accentuate whatever it is you're doing um, can really bring out a new melodic sort of thing. And so that's, that's just a touchstone for a, a jumping off point, I should say, for, for things that can ex be expanded upon. Stuff like that, where you can kind of explore it. I also like to think about things in patterns. Bela does this too, where you'll play one thing in one spot and then move it, do the same thing and just keep moving it. Like yeah. he's really big on this. Minor thirds, like anything in minor thirds. It's early in the morning, folks. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it sure is. Um, and so, uh, you know, any of that pattern based stuff, um, and, I'm also, I'm not trying to name drop, but I'm dear friends with Jens Kruger as well. And his yeah. approach is very different. Um, he can make music out of anything. This guy is probably yeah. one of the most musical people in the world. He really um, is. Outside of any instrument, whatever. And um, I see, I go visit him when I can at his house in Wilkesboro. And he cracks my head open like an oyster and sends me home. And then I go back and show him all the things that I've done with it. And then we pick it apart. And it's great. And He's helped me with a lot of compositional things and stuff like that. And also, like, technical, like, he has a technique that he does all the time, this. Which is related to the melodic thing, but. Like, triplet, triplety stuff. Gnome does that, too. Um, yeah. And, uh, and that kind of stuff is really super helpful for improvising. I feel like I do lean on, I said this earlier, but I feel like I do lean on the same things over and over again. Yeah. So being able to reinterpret the old in a new way is cool. And that's one of the things that I look for whenever I'm playing live is like, how can I do, I do this thing all the time? How can I do this thing differently right now? Yeah. Or, or what can I do about it? Like maybe it may be just as simple as moving in the other direction. Instead of going down, instead of a descending line, it's an ascending line or something. Or and like just, just force gonna... yourself into it by yep. brute strength. Sometimes, <laughs> but like a lot of it is listening. You know, like again, I'm, I'm listening and reacting to what other people are doing. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, the guitar player just played this, this really cool phrase in that solo or ended the solo on, a, on this thing. And I'm going to start there mm -hmm. and do that. Or like there's trades back and forth and that kind of thing. And that's, that's fun. So like most of it is listening. And then trying to adapt what I already know from from that. So, yeah, and assuming that everyone isn't playing the exact same thing that they always played, then you're naturally going to hear different things right. that or, can. Be or possible. you hear, you know, you hear the same. You hear because you play with the same people over and over again. You understand what their language is, and you hear them do kind of the same thing sometimes. Like, oh, that's a that's so and so's lick, or that's so and so's lick. I've heard that lick before. But then when they do something different, it's like, ooh. That was new. 
Let me uh, try that thing. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do something like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like, that's a cool new thing I've never heard you do before. So let me try and mess with that a bit. Uh, so I'll switch gears here a little bit. I think the first thing that I, or the first time I really became aware of you and reached out to you was because of uh, an Iceland trip mm -hmm. that uh, my sweetie was planning for me for for a birthday. And somehow, as we were in the planning stages, I somehow came across that you had done this Icelandic trip to to perform and maybe yep. do some some building of community yep. over there. So so tell me about what that experience was and maybe even what the status of, of it is now. Sure. So um, I've been twice. The first time was just purely vacation with, um, with a girlfriend at the time and some friends. And we just went on a group trip. Uh -huh. And so whenever I go anywhere, I'm like, where's the bluegrass? Sure. <laughs> is there a bluegrass jam in Iceland? And turns out there was a singular bluegrass band in the whole country. So Yeah, remind me what they're called. They, I know I looked them up. They don't, I don't think they exist anymore, but they're called Ilgresi, right. which roughly yeah. translates to grass in Icelandic. Right. And some of those guys have gone on to form a different band called Breck, which is more a folk band. Okay. And we might be pairing with them in the winter because they're coming over here. So Oh, how cool. That's a different story. Um, so the first time was just vacation. I looked up bluegrass in Iceland and ran across these guys and reached mm. out to them just blindly, reached out to them on Facebook and was like, hey, I'm coming over here. I play banjo. Here's some links to some stuff. Can we get together and jam? They're like, oh my God, yes, please. Because no one, we don't, we only play with each other. Yeah. It's such a closed right. system. Over like, there. Yeah. You know, the whole country has 350,000 people in it. So right. it's like, that's the population of the inner city of Raleigh. Yeah. So... You know, we I got over there and met the guys, and uh, they were really great, really sweetheart people, and mm -hmm. we hit it off, and the banjo player and I hit it off especially. Um, and so the a couple of years later, I'm like, got to go, got to do a tour, got to go over there. And so went over there, and the second time was expressly for that. So ended up playing a bunch of shows with, with them uh, in Reykjavik and then toured the Southern Ring Road. Um, out to a town called Sethusfjordur, which is, is about as far east as you can get in okay. Iceland. So it wasn't all the way around the island, but was the bottom half of it. Yeah. There and back again and played some dates through through Iceland. And it was it was awesome. Like, really cool. You know, Reykjavik obviously had the biggest crowd because it's the biggest town. Yeah. And um, as you got out into the countryside and played some of these smaller places, like the people were really, really like really into it because they don't get that. Like they never hear yeah. anything like that, especially like real American playing real American music, that kind of thing. And I remember being in a, in a playing a brewery gig and, um, and I trying to remember the name of the town that that was in Breitelsvik, um, a brewery in this little tiny fishing village and this lady at set break, this lady was like, come over here, come over here. And I'm like, okay, what's up? It's nice to meet you, et cetera, et cetera. And she's like, had her phone out. And she was like, I want you to watch this. I want you to see this. And so she plays for me the dueling banjo scene from Deliverance. <laughs> and I'm like, yes. And she's like, you play that. And I was like, yes, I know how to play that. She's like, no, go play that. It's a command, <laughs> yeah. not a question. It was not, yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'll play dueling banjos. And it's like, I've played all this complex, the stuff that I wrote and all this whatever, you know yeah. what I mean? Didn't care one bit. It was like, just go, yeah, everybody goes nuts. I was oh like, all right, God. cool, whatever. Whatever gets you in there, you know what I mean? This is like a parallel to whenever I'm telling my friends that there's more to music than olden in the way. Yeah. It's yeah. like, 
Jerry Garcia did not invent bluegrass in 1974, people. I just want you to know that. <laughs> bluegrass was also not invented by doing banjos, but that's fine if that's what gets you into it. Whatever. Yeah. And so it was really cool. So we uh, videotaped a lot of it, like documented the whole thing, mm-hmm. brought it back to the States, had it edited down. And then at IBMA one year had the video montage. It was like Raleigh to Reykjavik, mm-hmm. kind of, this is a cultural exchange thing. We're bringing bluegrass to this tiny island country and it turns out there's other people that play it over there and interviewed those guys and had this cultural exchange and have kept in contact with all of them and hence now they're the the other band that they're doing breck is coming over here for folk alliance in february Mm -hmm. and so we're planning a tour from kansas city to back to raleigh so it would be the reykjavik to raleigh version of it and we'll document all that and put it together and oh how cool and so like what's cool about that um not to sound opportunistic about it, but we're all interested in the same thing is that demonstrates to others that it can be done. And like, you can get funding to do that kind of stuff in other places. It's like mm-hmm. not just Iceland, but Ireland, Prague, whatever, you know, uh, Czech Republic, uh, England, all, all kinds of different things. So yeah. being able to bring this music to other places where it's not as prevalent. I mean, here you can turn over a rock and there's a bluegrass band, you know what I mean? So in places like that, where it's not as prevalent, you can bring all of this cultural stuff to that and then learn their stuff and bring it back over. So sure, it's, it's really sure. great. It's a good way to be able to, you know, be sort of cultural diplomats. Were you actually learning Icelandic music of some I, sort? I learned one, yeah. So I learned, like, they have a, a popular folk tune, which is essentially like their version of Amazing Grace. Okay. Called Hear Himna Smither is the name of it. I'm pardon my Icelandic friends. Sorry about that. Those of you who are listening, it's, over challen- it. it's a challenging language. Extremely. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I worked up an arrangement of that tune, which I'll I'll try to play it. Um, yeah, please. I would love to. It's hear been it. a while since I've done it, so you might have to edit this. <laughs> happy to do it. But uh, um, but anyway, the the tune is gorgeous, and it's a medieval. It's it's old, and it sounds like it. And it's normally just a it's a, a choral piece. Hmm. Um, so the story, I guess, if, I, if I'm getting this right again, apologies to my Icelandic friends if I'm messing this up, but the, it was um, written by one of the medieval kings of Iceland on the eve of battle. Mm. Um, and it was like meant to sort of invoke the blessing of the heavens uh, as we approach this battle, like very stoic and like we're going into, we're That's doing intense. this. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Um, so I'll, I'll take a crack at it. I might, this might be interesting. Is the gist. So anyone, anybody who needs to go into like banjo bluegrass battle, that's it. You should learn that piece. Yeah, and get in you'll there. Be blessed. Get with in there. Read, read, uh, <laughs> read the sagas. Read, um, you know, uh, uh, Beowulf. Get in there and, yeah. and go to battle. You know, um, 
But that's the idea. So if you look up that tune on YouTube, uh, there's one really great version um, of the of guys singing it in a German train station, and they're using the natural reverb in the train station to accent. Sounds amazing. Like it's okay. total goosebumps. I'm getting goosebumps now just thinking about it. I remember um, on one of the trips to Iceland hanging out with the banjo player at the at the pool and the pool over there they have it's geothermal springs mm -hmm. but they have like um, hot tub complexes basically that you can go to and soak and stuff and they they're, it's really popular over there yeah like even within Reykjavik there's at oh, least there's half a dozen and yeah. they're like the YMCA yep, that you go exactly. to exactly yeah. and like all the towns in Iceland have them too like right. that's just what the people do and um, I remember sitting there with him and one of his buddies came up and we, we all hung out together and one of those guys was the guy from the video. I was like, oh my no God, like kidding. that's crazy. You know what I mean? Like, so if you watch the video, he's the guy with the beer in his hand. <laughs> that's unbelievable. Yeah, it was nuts. And I was like, oh my God, this is crazy. He's like, yeah, this is sort of the, like, the, the one that he hung out in. He's like, this is sort of like the, the off the radar locals pool. So like sometimes like Bjork is here with her kids. And I'm like, you think she's going to be here today? Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, I've, I've talked to her before. She's really reserved. Like, she's very ostentatious in her performance and stuff like that. Uh -huh. But she shows up with her kids, and she's very much like a mama bear. Like, don't get too close to her kids. Don't I'm get too sure. close to her. But she's very personable. And everybody there, again, Icelanders, are some of the nicest humans on the planet. So yeah, yeah. I was like, well, maybe she'll show up. That'd be pretty cool. But I no, have questions. <laughs> no Bjork, but the, the no beer-holding guy from the German video yep. was there. He was which there. Which is probably... I think that's like equal, equal I would footing. Say. I mean, like in that stardom, yeah. in that moment, yeah, it was like, oh my god, this is cool. <laughs> Can't believe it. Well, I still appreciate. I, I know we had communicated a bit, and you gave me some tips, and you did put me in touch with those Ilgressi guys. I did yeah. not get to meet up with them, but I was communicating for a while. We tried to make it happen, but it didn't quite work out. But well, they'll be here. I, you know, at least some two of them from that band will be here in February, closer to your neck of the woods. Oh, are you doing upper, like upper Midwest? No, I mean closer than here. Closer, yeah. <laughs> so like they'll be in Kansas City for Folk Alliance. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if you're going to Folk Alliance, but no, not planning on it right now. But that's that's awesome that they'll be here and that you're still. Oh, yeah. I, I wasn't sure if you were still doing anything with that. That's great. Yeah, I mean, like we're always looking for opportunities to collaborate. So whatever yeah. we can do, and we were in touch quite a bit during the pandemic and. All that kind of stuff, like just to stay in touch and we're friends. So Wonderful. that makes sense. Yeah. Let's talk about your uh, composing. Do, sure. you, do you have a particular, I don't know, how, how do you approach composing? I know that's a wide open type type of question, but. Um, it depends. So sometimes ideas just pop out. Mm -hmm. Like the, the, the easy one is when things just sort of happen. Like I might just be playing banjo and come up on a roll pattern or a cool chord, sounding chord or whatever and kind of go from there. During the pandemic, the pandemic project was to compose 24 preludes for banjo and string quartet.
I've seen some of those on YouTube. There, yep. there was like a big performance at some point. Yeah, there's yeah. been a couple. Um, and I have, I am 23. I have 23 of them done. <laughs> so we're almost finished. C sharp minor is the last one. And um, is this a similar to like a, the Rex McGee project with that you covered every major and minor key? Is that yep. the 24? Yep, all okay. 24, so all 12 keys and relative minors. Yeah. Um, but what's different about this one is that it's banjo and string quartet. Yeah. And so sometimes the banjo is integrated into the string quartet. Sometimes the string quartet takes over. Um, sometimes the string quartet is just background. Just depends on the piece, depends on the key. So when I'm coming up with different ideas for anything, regardless of you know what it is it usually starts out as just a simple idea you know and sometimes like i said they pop out they come right out sometimes i have to sit on it forever yeah um there's one one of the preludes f major um i sat on for a while because uh growing up we had i don't know if if anybody else out there in the world does this but we had a family whistle so my brother and I are two years apart and we're fairly wild growing up. And so in the days before cell phones and stuff like that, my parents used this whistle to sort of geolocate us. <laughs> oh, so like in a crowded yep. environment. Or like the, the grocery store or the <laughs> store, something like we'd run off somewhere, they would do this whistle. And your ears would perk up. And we when would you know hear, it because yeah. it's the only thing that sounds like that. And so yeah. they would whistle and we would whistle back. And so we could find each other. Oh, and that's so like, great. that, and it turns out it's naturally in the key of F. Hmm. And so um, I sat on that one for a while because I was too emotionally attached to it. Um, and I didn't want to mess it up. Yeah. You know, like I didn't want it to be, I didn't want to give it short shrift, I guess. Right. Like, like I wanted disgrace it to disgrace your family. Right. By, uh, Bring shame upon yeah. the family <laughs> by it not sounding like the whistle. And so in any case, the whistle is, uh, <laughs> that's the whistle. <laughs> And so that's in banjo language. And so the prelude goes, I'll see if I can do this, might need to edit too, but we'll see. Beautiful. Thanks, man. So, so it seems like that's just a like a motif with right. variations. So that and, one started out as a theme. Yeah. And it was like, okay, so what do we do with the theme? Develop the theme, that yeah. kind of thing. It's got a pretty straightforward form. Um, but then some of them start out like uh, the A flat major prelude. Uh, my, one of my biggest influences in terms of composing is Shostakovich. I love his music, um, particularly his preludes and. Uh, Symphony number eight is the is the jam. Um, okay. If you really want to get in there and, and get dark, that's the one. Right. It's really beautiful. Um, but 
listening to his prelude, if I get stuck on something, it's like I really want to come up with an idea. I'll listen to his stuff and like find something in that music. And it's like, well, let me let me go from there. So like with the A flat major prelude, it started out with just a roll because he did something in one of the pieces in the piano that sounded like a banjo roll to me. Yeah. And it was like, okay, this is like kind of banjo music. And so like that one started out like this. Which is a five four. And that gives you the like that really lovely A flat major seven with a G in it. It's really mm-hmm. nice. And so it's like, well, I could make this weird or it could be fairly diatonic and normal. And so that ended up going. I love those, man. Those are great. Thanks, man. Is this going to be a recording project at some point? Eventually, yeah. Oh, that's um, great. Can't for wait. sure. I just want to get all of it done, uh, get all of them done, scored, and ready to go yeah. so that um, it can be more easily accessed. And then I'll I'll get it all published and, you know, there'll be a book um, of the scores and tabs and stuff like that, too, um, oh, eventually. Wonderful. So it's just a, yeah, it's a passion project, but we're So if you're publishing the it. scores, this is something that... Uh, uh, up in Detroit, the DSO could purchase. Completely. And, uh, the other thing is that uh, I, I teach banjo in the music department at UNC Chapel Hill. Mm-hmm. And as I'm putting these things together and getting them scored, all of them will end up in the library, the university library. So they, cool. will be, they will be accessed. You, can, you will be able to access them forever, forevermore in the university library. And so anyone anywhere can do interlibrary loan and get a hold of it and play it and so i'll have it again scored in standard notation for string quartet but also the the melodies themselves will be scored in uh-huh. standard notation so that any instrument can play it but then there'll right. also be banjo tab oh man so yeah that's really cool yeah man uh while we still have a little time let's sure. start talking about like gear and your instrument sure. and all that stuff um sure thing. and cater to the banjo nerds you know no <laughs> you know how we are no, I do. no detail 
too small. So right. tell us what your main instrument is and, and all the other sure. uh, goodies that you have to go with it. So uh, it's worth, again, just a, a word from our sponsors. Um, I'm a Deering artist. And I had them build this banjo custom for me in 2005. It's a maple blossom, um, but it has things about it that are different than the standard maple blossom in that it has, at the time, now they're standard, but at the time it wasn't. It has a radius fingerboard. Um, it also has a thinner neck. Um, it's more in line with the Crossfire. I have a Crossfire too. And at the time, I was playing both of them pretty equally on stage so i needed yeah. them to feel the same as i'd switch back and forth the neck feel the same yeah. so there wouldn't be like one's like a tree trunk and the other one's not yeah um so they're very similar uh thinness of neck um it has a pickup obviously it has spikes uh the spikes are at seven eight and nine as opposed to seven nine and ten so i could get b flat open b flat g minor stuff but you don't use the 10 obviously then no i so i'm averse to capos because one, you have to spend time tuning on stage, and two, early on to go back full circle, I train myself not to use them. Yeah. So whenever there's something in the key of C or whatever, normally people would capo five, and you lose all of this. Like you lose all of like right. below the fifth fret. So like, I, if I'm playing in C, I'm gonna play in C. Like I'm just gonna play open. Open C as opposed to up here in the fifth. Um, I'm I'm the same way. That's my default. But every once in a while, there's just sort of a, a more blistering kind of number totally. that you you'd want to. And that's clamp just down. it. I think the the rule is if I have to do this in any capacity, then capo. Right. Right. Or like if I can get away with it, like it's not always easy to do that. For those of you listening at home, I'm um, using my index finger to bar the fifth fret, and then using the rest of my fingers to do that. Lick. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but. That's that's that whole thing. I try to keep it open for the most part. Or if like something's in A, I'll just spike the the one string. Okay. Um, Interesting. For for speed and for just because. And uh, um, anyways, the the tone ring in this is the Kruger tone ring. It's uh, the Ruchi tone ring, which is a, made in a Swiss bell foundry. Um, that I had them put in recently, and they are now in production of making me a custom neck, a 24 fret neck, oh, for this banjo with custom inlays and all that. Like I designed like the gnome type of yep. extended or, fingerboard 24 yep. fret, not okay. not a not a longer scale, not length. the Hartford thing, right? Okay, but it'll like it'll come out over the rim mm -hmm. of the banjo uh, and has will have custom inlays that I design and stuff like that. So, oh, cool. one of the guys on the Zoom call was like, "Do you collect banjos?" And I'm like, "I can't afford to collect banjos. I'm a full time banjo player. <laughs> so what I can do is Frankenstein this banjo yeah. into what I want it to be. You know what I mean? So uh -huh. like after a while, it, it's not going to be a maple. Once I put the new neck on it, it won't be a maple blossom anymore. And so like that could be a prototype signature model. Yeah. So if like people like it, if Deering likes it, then they could make more of them. Um, it also has this cool wooden armrest and it has a pickup and the pickup that's in it is an old it's probably 20 years old at this point passive j.a jones pickup from the from the catalog i understand that fishman rare earth pickups and stuff use the same idea but they're active they have the battery inside of them yeah. whereas this one is totally passive but it sounds so good i haven't had the need to change it, out with it at all yeah. yeah and so i use that pickup blended with a gold tone clip-on mic the dsc whatever it is um, the condenser one yeah the condenser yeah. one and all of that blends into um, a grace box, uh, the two-channel grace box, the, the Felix, I guess. Right. 
And then that's, I have a, a reverb and a delay. Um, I have an uh, Electro Harmonics um, Holy Grail reverb and a Boss, just standard stock and trade Boss delay pedal mm -hmm. from years ago. Um, and that's the main acoustic rig, um, pretty much. Uh, and I also have a Crossfire um, that is rigged for synth. It has the Roland synthesizer thing that Bela has on his because obviously, and I needed that yeah, for the Yeah, you need a lot band. of those tones. Yep. And... That's run through the boss, you know, or uh, the Roland synth pedal, and then there's a bunch of like analog hippie switches that accompany that <laughs> as well. Most of it electro harmonics because they sound cool. Yeah, yeah. What about like picks and strings or sure, any yeah. particular setup stuff? Strings. So the banjo is set up with fairly, I'd say, middle low action. Um, although Wes Corbett told me my action was high, I was like, that's crazy. It doesn't, Weird. It doesn't seem like it. <laughs> huh. Uh, the strings are straight up strings. Um, also a sponsor. Um, I really like the way those sound. The deering strings are really nice too, but the straight up strings, I guess the way they figured out how to do the, the download tension on the bridge right. makes a lot more separation. So you get more tonal clarity, I think out of it, which is cool. Interesting. Yeah. Um, as per Jens Kruger's advice, the tailpiece on this bridge, this is definitely anti Bela. Bela does this in the opposite direction. The tailpiece the armrest and any metal at all on this thing is all fused together. So, like, the tailpiece is touching the rim. It's not off the rim at all. It's okay. It's completely pressed down onto it, as okay. is the armrest. And the armrest is wooden on top, but metal underneath. Okay. And so, the idea behind that is, if you put me, and the strings are medium gauge, and I have played heavy strings on this before, but it's too much. It hurts too much. Mm -hmm. um, so, I went back to mediums. Um, the more metal, the more sound. It's like a it's like a plate in a grand piano. Okay. So it's all pushing tone. Like the more of that, and I even thought about getting like Scruggs tuners, just for the extra weight, for the extra weight and the tone. But they're a pain, so I'm not going to do it. Although that being said, I've heard that Bela does that. Yeah. Um. So he so he must subscribe at least somewhat to he does all of this. He does. Well, at least one of the banjos has that for sure. Um. But they they are kind of a pain to keep in tune and all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. That being said, I really want to play Strider, <laughs> so I'm gonna yeah. need some kind of tuners <laughs> at some point. Or I can be like one of my students at UNC and just have perfect pitch and never mess up, which <laughs> is obviously you not have a student happen. who can do that. I had a student wow. at Carolina that could do that. A fiddle player that took a semester of banjo that could do tuner tunes, Scruggs tuner tunes without the tuners and nail it every time. Oh my. And I'm like, ah, all right, whatever. I mean, so I could spend a long time practicing that, or I can just get Scruggs tuners put on. But I'm probably not going to do that, listeners at home, just so you know. Um, but that's the rig. It also has a, a smile bridge. It's an 11 sixteenths Deering bridge because that is also radiused, and um, it matches that. I haven't really gotten any custom bridge work done, but it's something I thought about yeah. just, to, just to do. There's a guy out of Asheville that builds bridges out of old like hardwood floors and furniture and stuff like that, yeah. which would be kind of cool to get a hold of just to try. What kind are those? I can't remember the name of it. Okay. Um, the name escapes me, but he's in Asheville, North Carolina, and custom makes these things um, out of old wood, tone wood. Right on. Anything else I forgot to ask you about that you want people to know? I mean, obviously plug like website or, sure. or whatever you got there, sure, but sure. also if there's any, you know, just open floor to, to anything else you want to say. I'm in Hank Patty in the Current. That's our touring band. Um, look us up on all the things: Spotify, YouTube, all the outlets, um, Apple Music, Amazon, yada yada. Um, we are on tour now, supporting our fifth album, Letters. Um, Wonderful. Which we recorded in Asheville, North Carolina, back in February. Um, we did 15 tracks in three days, 
which was intense, yeah. but we did it. And um, we're really happy with the way it turned out. It was mixed and mastered by Jason Richmond, who's a fantastic human being. And uh, Hank, hankandpatty.com, that's Patty with an I-E. Mm-hmm. And yeah, come check us out. We're playing here at IBMA. If well, I don't know when this is going to air, but <laughs> not not before the end of IBMA. Okay, I can, I can so assure you. So <laughs> we're we're on tour. Yeah, <laughs> we are on tour currently. Check us out on the website. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Hank. Great yeah, running thanks, into you. Keith. I hope to get to hear you guys play one of these uh, days while we're here. Yeah, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, you I bet. Appreciate it. Yeah. How many more um, showcases you guys have? So I hope this would have been a thing to talk about on the thing, maybe. Um, but I host a music se- host slash created a weekly music uh, series. I didn't even turn it off. We're yet, still there. So. Okay, so just for the listeners at home, um, I host a weekly music series and help create a thing called Beer and Banjos. Um, that started here in Raleigh. It's every week. It's every Tuesday night at a place called the Raleigh Times, um, and that's since branched out to Durham. There's a Beer and Banjos Durham. There's a Beer and Banjos Carborough, which is Chapel Hill, essentially. And, and you're personally involved in each of these? I'm personally involved in Raleigh, and then the fourth one is in Winston-Salem. Uh-huh. Um, I handed off Durham and Carborough to other hosts um, so they can curate it in their own way and book their own bands and have their own host band, their own version of the Beer and Banjos All-Stars. And um, my, uh, my partner and I have created Beer and Banjos Winston-Salem so, as far to answer your question about playing, we played last night, Beer and Banjos. It's Tuesday nights in Raleigh. Mm-hmm. Wednesday nights in Winston-Salem, so I have to drive to Winston-Salem this afternoon. Mm-hmm. Um, the Durham one occurs once a month on Thursdays, and the Carborough one is also on Wednesdays once a week. So, Raleigh and um, Carborough are once a week. So, Durham, almost every night, there's a Beer and yep, Banjos somewhere. Somewhere kind in of North around. Carolina, yeah. yep. <laughs> and uh, so, I'm doing that tonight, and then Thursday... Um, Hank and Patty played Lincoln Theater uh, here in Raleigh, and then we do um, a street fest uh, show. I'll host a jam on Friday, which will be probably in the convention center for those of you listening at home. Hurricane Ian is going to wash us out. Um, And then we have a street fest performance on Saturday. um, Proper street fest performance. Which, again, will not be on the street, as it turns out. In the convention center. (laughs) (laughs) But anyways, that's that's that. Yeah, thanks again. Yeah, absolutely. That's going to do it for this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in, everybody. The sound clips you heard in order were the interlude from the Rootsche Forge by Hank Patty and The Current, Deep Blue Sea by Pete Seeger, Bigfoot by Bela Fleck and the Flecktones, Blue Bop by the band called Blue Bop, that's Hank's Flecktones tribute band, and then that Icelandic hymn titled by Regular listeners have probably heard me say a lot of dumb stuff over the years, but apparently that's where I draw the line, is uh, speaking Icelandic. And then finally, Prelude in B Minor by Hank Smith with the Winston-Salem String Quartet. Thank you once again to Kibby Winder, this episode's Patreon supporter of the show. Head over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to support the show yourself, or get a hold of me at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much, and I'll see you all next time.
Hold on. I never pressed record. That's like an essential part of this process.